Welcome back to the Fourth Way Podcast. Today we are going to close our series on consequentialism. Since this podcast is focused on nonviolence, I think it's really important that we take a look at why we spent a whole season discussing consequentialism. Uh, how does that relate to the issue of nonviolence? Before I, I show you specifically how it impacts the issue of nonviolence, let me remind you of some of the, the main ideas we've pulled out of consequentialism in showing why people adhere to it so much. Why is it so appealing? And the, the first alluring aspect of consequentialism is that it allows us to determine our own morality. If you want to be a Democrat, you can be a Democrat and justify some of the things that they do by saying, well, we're not as bad as the other side, so I'm really just clinging to the good things. I'm trying to do uh, what I think is is the greatest amount of good. And our, our goods outweigh the other side's goods. Therefore, I can embrace the evil that's being done on my side. And if you want to be a Republican you can do the exact same thing. You can say, well, they've got the issue of abortion over there, and we all know that on the moral scales, that outweighs all of the problems that my party or leaders have. It also allows us to escape problems. Um, We can condemn abortion in third world countries to mothers who, if they had the child, their family would starve to death. We can condemn that and, and say, you know what, I empathize with that and I feel bad for them, but you know, they just can't do that. Like, that's just immoral. No matter how much I can empathize with them, that's not the right choice. But at the same time, we are able over here to accept abortion for something like an ectopic pregnancy because how could we let a mother die? Um, and the reason we do that, I think, is because we can foresee ourselves being in a situation where life just happens to us, and how can I help an ectopic pregnancy? But as far as being put into a position where my family is not going to be able to eat and that we're going to starve, um, that's not something that I ever really have to worry about because I'm in a country that, that wouldn't ever lead me to experience that, and I've got a family who would prevent me from experiencing that. And possibly even in part because in my mind, or in our mind over here, uh, economics and, and financial well-being is in part uh, one's own responsibility. We can't fathom that somebody would be destitute uh, if it wasn't somehow their fault, or at least to a certain extent their fault. So consequentialism helps us to define things how we want to define them. We can condemn one person for one evil and then somehow justify uh, our own evils by somehow figuring out how the scales are changed to weigh in our favor. The second thing that's really alluring to us in, uh, and why we decide to follow consequentialism is because it allows us to sacrifice others, especially those who are impediments to us. So we can sacrifice the Nazi soldier in Nazi Germany. If you go Democrat, you can sacrifice the unborn uh, to get to get justice for the poor or for minorities. If you're a Republican, you can sacrifice the immigrant and the poor in order to to get um, to stop abortion and to um, 
to try to maintain the middle class. Because, you know, the middle class works hard and isn't poor because they've pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. Consequentialism allows us to not only define our enemies, but to treat our enemies how we would like to treat them. In war, we can sacrifice other countries. Uh, we can sacrifice even civilians, as civilian deaths don't really bother us too much. Um, we can just sacrifice people if we need to, to preserve our way of life. Consequentialism helps to ensure that my way of life isn't confronted that much and that I can kind of go on living the way that, that I want to live. I can turn the poor or the Roma into objects and discard them as I please or uh, fail to act generously or graciously or mercifully. I can do that on consequentialism without it bothering me one bit because I'm actually doing the right thing on consequentialism. And then, of course, the third thing that consequentialism allows us to do, while it allows us to sacrifice those who are impediments to us, that, in turn, allows us to avoid our own sacrifice. And Jesus was pretty clear that, uh, yeah, uh, you need to love your enemies, and what that probably is going to include most of the time is a sacrifice, but not on their part, on your part, as you turn the other cheek, as you walk the extra mile, as you bear your cross, the ultimate display of enemy love and what loving enemies brings. As uh, General Patton says, and as which I love to quote, no dumb bastard ever won a war by dying for his country. He won a war by making some other poor dumb bastard die for his country. Consequentialism is not only about sacrificing others, but avoiding your sacrifice. So you can probably see at this point why consequentialism is so alluring. Um, it really allows us to make life what we want to make it. It is the sin that, uh, or the root of the sin that, that uh, was bothering Jesus so much of his life as Satan tempted him to be a consequentialist and take power the way that everybody knows one should take power, the, the ways that work. Uh, as Peter tempted him to avoid suffering and as, as Jesus pled with God in the garden to avoid suffering and cross. Uh, Jesus knows firsthand the temptation consequentialism brings. And it's the, the same temptation that uh, befell Adam and Eve in the garden. You want to be like God and define good and evil for yourself. Uh, figure out how to weigh the moral scales. So how do we see consequentialism specifically play out uh, in, in nonviolence? Well, I think you can just look back to season one and take a look at the, the four positive cases for nonviolence. Uh, the first, we discussed the biblical case, and what consequentialism is going to do is it's going to turn um, pretty clear words of Christ into metaphors. And I talked a lot about this in, in episode one uh, of season two, uh, how we do so good at turning, uh, turning Christ's words into metaphors when it's convenient for us to do so. Uh, we we get to determine which sins are really bad and which sins aren't, and what is is a greater good and a greater evil, and we can kind of shape our communities and our desires and our our life how we want to. So when Jesus talks about enemies, 
in particular, as it relates to nonviolence, we get to determine what that means. We see consequentialism rear its head again when we look at church history. And in church history, what ends up happening is uh, consequentialism makes us dismissive of, of the very early church, the church that was univocally nonviolent. I mean, not a one dissenter that, that I can think of. Uh, it's, uh, consequentialism makes us dismissive. As, of these Christians as naive. Oh, well, you know, this was, of course, pre-Constantine and pre-Augustine. Uh, so they just, you know, these Christians weren't facing Christianity uh, with power. And well, yeah, of course they weren't. But do you really think the people who died for their enemies in the first 250 years of Christianity would say, you know what, I'm just dying for my enemies until I can get power, and then I'm going to kill my enemies um, or refuse to die for my enemies. It's just, it makes no sense. Um, yet we dismiss the people who were, were closest to Christ and who had a univocal uh, view. You know, if there, were, if there were lots of different views at that time, uh, like there were for many, many other uh, theological issues, we might be able to, to have a, a better discussion about this. But it's just so crazy that you can find everybody being on the same page. And not only that, but Christianity growing because of the example that they're setting. And then we want to say that, that those people were naive um, and ineffective, which is just not true. They were the closest to Christ. They had the clearest vision of how Christ lived and how he called them to live. And they were very effective and to think that their circumstances would have changed how they acted morally is is offensive, in, in my opinion. But that's what consequentialism has to do to the first 300 years of church history. Then we get into the empirical and intuitive case. And what consequentialism does there is it, it refuses to acknowledge the, uh, the counterintuitive nature of Christ's teachings. Uh, it refuses to acknowledge the first or last and the masters should be servants and the servants uh, will be elevated in the kingdom of God. It, it fails to acknowledge um, how intuitions are, our selfish intuitions are often wrong. And then we fail to reflect when we have this intuition to kill our enemies. Um, we have this intuition that says, well, of course that's how it should be. And as, as consequentialist Christians, rather than question a selfish intuition that calls us to kill somebody else and view them as an impediment, uh, we go with the intuition on this case because it's, it's easier. And beyond the intuitions and the failure to question those and look at how our intuitions should jive with Christ's teachings, um, consequentialism also refuses to look at the empirical evidence that uh, you know what we see in the early church and how they spread the gospel so well. What we see in countries that are persecuted, like China, and how um, submissive Christians who don't have power end up just multiplying like wildfire. Or how you've got places like Belgium and Denmark, who are the, the two countries with the, the best survival rate for Jews. They saved 99% plus of their Jewish population nonviolently. 
Uh, and then with the research coming out that shows how nonviolent movements have been twice as likely to succeed as violent revolutions, uh, consequentialism just refuses to look at the evidence. And finally, when we get to examples of, of the nonviolent in action, consequentialism causes us to do two things. First, it causes us to overlook the huge moral failings uh, which mark Christianity to this day. Take Calvin, for instance. You know, Servetus and, and his execution, burning at the stake, is one example of, of how his, his uh, image is marred. Zwingli telling, telling people that Anabaptists are supposed to be drowned to death. Um, Luther and his, his anti-Semitism and, and his violence. Uh, and Luther's work was, used, uh, was influential to Hitler. Uh, and then, of course, we've got the Crusades. So whether it's Catholicism or, or Protestantism or whatever, you've just got you've got great minds and um, some godly people who do terrible, terrible, horrible things, and and uh, some of those things are things which haunt Christianity to this day. As atheists use some of these aspects of Christianity to point out how. They would never want to become a Christian because of, of how hypocritical and cruel and terrible Christians are. And they're right. We have historically been so. And at the same time, uh, consequentialism amplifies the sins of the nonviolent. Oh, nonviolence, they say? Well, look at Martin Luther King Jr. You know, he was an adulterer. Okay, I'm not dismissing adultery and saying that that's, that's an okay thing. I'm not even saying that um, it's not that bad. But Martin Luther King's personal issue with adultery compared to Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli killing people and Luther's influence on Hitler and the, the, the Crusades and the, the terrible things that, that uh, soldiers did not only to, to other people, but to Christians, to fellow Christians. Uh, it just doesn't even compare. And, you know, the, what, the Anabaptists, like the terrible nonviolent Anabaptists, who's, uh, you can point out that they were heterodox, at least at that time, heterodox in terms of uh, baptism, um, although they'd be, they'd be considered orthodox today because most people here are uh, in the States, uh, our believer uh, believe in believers baptism but like you just don't find the same level of of atrocity and horror uh, horror that you do um, among among mainstream um, individual Christians who were pro-violence you just don't find the same sorts of things and consequentialism overlooks those things so in the end, yeah, consequentialism has a, a huge impact on how we view the issue of nonviolence. It gives us so many uh, blinders um, that we, we just aren't able to see what, uh, what the truth is in a lot of cases. And at the same time, it, um, it elevates our selfish desires uh, as we seek to determine our own morality and uh, objectify others and avoid our own sacrifice. Consequentialism is just at the core of, of so much of our compromise in the world. 
and nonviolence is just one of the compromises that we get from consequentialism. So that's all for now. So peace. And since I'm a pacifist, and I say it, I mean it. <laughs>